Blog Talk Radio. March 18th, 2016 edition of Don't Let It Go Unheard, and this is where we discuss news, politics, and culture from the perspective of Ayn Rand's philosophy. Ayn Rand's philosophy of objectivism uniquely upholds the right to the pursuit of your own happiness. I'm Amy Peikoff, your host, and I see a number of people here in the chat room. They say the sound is good. That's good to know. We will try to avoid any... uh, extended periods of bad sound today for Tim in particular in the chat room. We want to make sure we we hold on to him. Welcome, everybody. I see a few people here. Um, I think today the topic that I have could be seen as a bit abstruse, but I do think that you will enjoy it. My title is reflective of what I really want to focus on, but bear with me here, okay? It's This is the title, Justice as Endangered Species, sounding like a law review article, right? Justice as Endangered Species, Encryption, Billy Bud, and the Unity of Rights. And the way that I came up with this was a couple of things kind of put together in my mind. One was that this semester I've again taught Melville's Billy Bud, which is sort of a short story that he wrote towards the end of his life. As I understand, it was found in his unpublished papers uh, after he died. And they went ahead and, and published it. So maybe it's not one of his most finished works, but many people are familiar with it. Some, I've been told since I posted early about this in the week, they um, they were assigned this in school. Some of them really didn't like the experience of being assigned it in school, and I think you'll understand why when I talk about it in a little bit. But the other thing uh, that came together besides Billy Bud and, and my interpretation of Billy Budd, which is a little bit different than the standard interpretations that I've seen out there. The other thing that came across on my radar is Obama speaking at South by Southwest, trying to get all of the liberal tech people on board with his push to force his way into our devices like our iPhones. Uh, they, he wants to break encryption. He was trying to sidestep the current ongoing Apple versus FBI debate and just talk about why in general the government really needs all the information that's in these devices that we are holding in our hands. And one of the reasons that he gave in particular is something that I integrated with my view of Billy Budd. And I've got a couple other stories that tie into the theme as well. If you want to check out the program notes, which is all the stories that I hope that I can get to and discuss today, go to don'tletitgo.com, don'tletitgo.com, 
and you'll see them all there. For those of you who are listening for the first time, when I say don't let it go, it means the American sense of life. And if you click on the about portion of don'tletitgo.com, you'll see a little excerpt from the essay called Don't Let It Go by Ayn Rand. And that's how this show got the title, Don't Let It Go Unheard, that we are trying to, that's you know, kind of my goal here, is to revive and encourage the survival of the American sense of life insofar as it still exists here today. So check that out over there, and we can go ahead and dive in if you like. I want to know from people in the chat room, have you read Billy Bud before? And if you haven't read Billy Bud, are you going to mind getting spoilers from me? Because I am going to give you big spoilers about the book. And oh, um, uh, Herman says in the chat room, he says that I've just finished the book for the first time today. So that's excellent. And that's why I did go ahead and post it earlier in the week. It's something that you can just read in a few hours. It depends how fast, uh, how quickly that you read. Matt says he doesn't mind spoilers. I mean, it's it's a pretty... Um, it's a story that really affects you. I had spoken uh, with one friend who said, yeah, I, you know, I, I saw the movie and the profound injustice in the movie uh, was something that uh, my friend still remembered. So, you know, the, it, it's something that would affect you if you did either watch it or read it. So you might go ahead and, and check it out. Um, at some point, but the problem is I'm going to be giving you spoilers. So if you want to tune out right now, go read the book and then get, you know, here, that's fine. But Melville is hard to read, so maybe you would decide not to read it. Uh, There is a movie, though, and I haven't watched the movie, so I'm not familiar with how the movie is, you know, does the movie give you enough information to reach my interpretation of the book? And I'm not sure whether it does, but those of you who have seen the movie, if you've seen the movie, you can tell me whether you reach the same conclusion with respect to that. Uh, Matt says, 130-year-old spoilers. It's true, though, but you know, so many of us did not really get the education that we should have, and we didn't necessarily read works that might have profoundly affected you, like Billy Bud. So... Um, you know, even if it's a 130-year-old spoiler, it might be something that somebody wants to avoid. So I just want to give them the opportunity. For me, I had a high school English teacher who was great from one perspective, which is that he assigned me the fountainhead. And that's really wonderful. I've got a high school reunion coming up, and I understand that the teacher has been invited, so I would love to see him again. I haven't seen him for many years. And then the thing that was kind of bad about him was it was an AP English class, advanced placement as they call it. And advanced placement students, I guess they're supposed to be smart and be able to direct themselves, direct their own education more than other students. So what this teacher did is he left it to us to pick some of our own readings to write reports about for the class. And all I knew what to do at the time, I was a big Duran Duran fan, so what did I do? I looked at Simon Le Bon's recommended list of books, right, and I'd pick books off of that. And do you think I got the classics or some of the things I was supposed to be reading? I did not. So um, <laughs> Herman Chatter says, many great works from the 19th century that shall not be spoiled. Again, I mean, there's there's just some of us. We want to go ahead and fill in those holes in our education. It's fine. Um yeah, same author as Moby Dick, that's right. Um, and 
it was funny because I have not read Moby Dick, but I hear that Moby Dick is a book that puts many people to sleep. And Melville can be difficult to read at first. And he goes on tangents. He'll even tell you he's going on a tangent. So um, you do have to have a bit of patience, but the story is interesting and gripping and it does affect you. That's all I can uh, well, I'm going to tell you, of course, why in a minute. But let's go ahead and jump into the first story that really got me upset. It's from Yahoo News, and the headline is, Sidestepping Apple Dispute, Obama Makes Case for Access to Device Data. If you recall, Obama decided that instead of going to Nancy Reagan's funeral, that it was more important for him to go to South by Southwest. And here I am looking at the spinning rainbow of death again on my computer. I cannot believe. So all morning I did not have the spinning rainbow of death while I was preparing the show notes, posting them. Everything was great. And now here I am on the Yahoo News website trying to read from this article for you. I'm going to have to start printing these things. I'm going to have to start going old school just so I can do a show. But yeah, sidestepping Apple dispute, Obama makes case for access to device data. And he went to South by Southwest in Austin, and he decided he was going to talk to all the tech people there, make his case for why the government needs access to our encrypted data. And again, for the life of me, I'm not able to get into this article on Safari. Apple, I love you, but you have got to do something better with the Safari because now I'm going over to Firefox just so I can get access to this article. That's really sad. So here I am in Firefox. Are we going to scroll in Firefox in a way that, yes, we're scrolling very nice in Firefox here. Okay, so uh, President Barack Obama, by the way, this is published on March 11th, last Friday, but I guess too late for me to grab it for the show. Barack Obama, on Friday, he made a passionate case for mobile devices to be built in such a way as to allow government to gain access to personal data if needed to prevent a terrorist attack or, right, before, they've all been talking about the terrorist attack. They've been talking about the San Bernardino case. They've got to get into that locked phone because who knows, there might be some information there. And you know, a lot of people have been talking about what information could actually be on that phone because, for example, all the phone records the text message records and stuff could be obtained from the cellular service provider, right? So it's not clear what is really on that phone of any value anyway. And Apple makes the case that really the government is just trying to get access to these devices and prevent us from having encrypted devices where we can have actual privacy. So going back to the article, speaking at South by Southwest in Texas, Obama said he could not comment on the legal case in which the FBI is trying to force Apple, right? No, he's not commenting, but even though he's not commenting, he says, despite his commitment to Americans' privacy and civil liberties, a balance is needed to allow some intrusion when needed. When is it needed? Here's a quote from him. He says, the question we now have to ask is... If technologically it is possible to make an impenetrable device or system where the encryption is so strong that there is no key, there's no door at all, then how do we apprehend the child pornographer? How do we solve or disrupt a terrorist plot? Okay, so now he's talking about, 
you know, the bad guys? How can you be against nabbing child pornographers? How can you be against stopping terrorists? So he's trying to get the sympathy about this. And then he starts to reveal his big agenda. Again, quoting from Obama, what, mechan- what mechanisms, he says, what mechanisms do we have available to even do simple things like tax enforcement? It's just a simple thing. Stealing your money, right? Making sure that we are getting all the money that we say we're entitled to steal from you. Tax enforcement, simple things like that. He says, because in fact, you can't crack that at all. If in fact you can't crack that at all, government can't get in then everybody is walking around with a Swiss bank account in their pocket, end quote. And then you start thinking, what in the world is he talking about? Because all of our bank records, I mean, yeah, we can do banking from our phone, but the government can access our bank records from our bank. So what is he talking about? I conclude that he must be talking about Bitcoin wallets sitting on your phone. How dare you, using technology, figure out a way to stop government from stealing your money by dealing in Bitcoin. That's horrible. And it's such a small percentage of the economy. But Obama can't stand to let this go on, that people are actually living with some modicum of freedom somewhere, so he's got to get into this phone, right? This is his agenda. So what do you learn from this? What I learned from this, and I'm going to be tying this into Billy Budd in a second, is that once you establish within a government the idea that the government is morally and legally entitled to steal money from you by this method of involuntary taxation, once you establish that, then the idea that you can actually have privacy in a device like this, which is used mostly for law-abiding purposes. I'm no fan of child pornographers, I am certainly no fan of terrorists, um, but I still believe that we should be perfectly legally entitled to own an encrypted device. And it's not, you know, President Obama, and he knows this, there's no key. Of course there's a key. There is a key that only I have in my brain. It's called the passcode to this device, right? There is a key. The only problem is, is that the government has to go to the hassle of presenting a warrant to the one person who has the key. Oh, that's such a hassle. The government doesn't want to have to do that. The government wants to, without your knowledge, turn some switch, hit a button somewhere off in Washington, D.C., and then have automatic access to the data on your phone through the cloud, right? That's what they want. They want to hide from you the fact that they are invading your privacy whenever the hell they feel like it. That's what they want to do. And as Apple has discussed in their memorandum of points and authorities or whatever you call it, in support of their refusal to comply with that court order in the San Bernardino case, they point out the fact that there is nothing different in principle from what the government is asking to do here and then the government asking for ways to turn on our microphones and cameras and all the stuff that we've been joking about for years is going on. The stuff that Edward Snowden warns is already going on right now. Hello, NSA, if you're watching right now, I hope you're learning something because you guys are being immoral. Um, 
the FBI phone is some some of this motive power. That is perfect. The FBI phone. That's what they want to make this, right? They want to make this the same as the screens in George Orwell's 1984, right? That's what they want to do with this. And they are not entitled. It is perfectly moral and should be perfectly legal in a free country for a company like Apple or any other tech company to offer devices like this that are completely encrypted and that the only person who can get into them is me. And then, yes, you know, I believe that there are situations in which it is proper for government to compel the production of evidence, but I don't think that the government should be able to achieve this the easiest, most convenient way for them when they're lazy I want to start becoming like Tammy Bruce at this point because I get so mad about this. But, you know, I was going to say they're lazy asses they're sitting on in Washington, D.C., and they just want to flip a button and or a switch or whatever and see what I'm doing. That is immoral. This is horrible. They need to have to come to me with a warrant based on probable cause, based on particularized suspicion before they can get into my devices, before they can turn on these cameras and everything else in the world. Um, even prisoners today, right? We treat prisoners better than they're talking about maybe treating suspects out there. And I put suspects in quotes because <sighs> Matt in the chat room says, why doesn't the FBI make a, a phone and give it to all of us for free like Obama phones? Then they can make any backdoor that they want. Some people would take it, right? Some people have this idea. They say, oh, I have nothing to hide. I am so innocent. Why do I care? Right? Why do I care if the government watches me? And in a certain way, I think that's true. But I actually have a story that we'll talk about that uh, talks about what the collateral damage is of a surveillance state. And it's not very surprising for those of us who've been thinking about it. (sighs) Tim says, yes, people in favor of the FBI demand on Apple should ask the government to make a phone and then they can buy it. Yeah. Let them go ahead and do it. (laughs) Selfishness says, as I have heard, the government can't outlaw math. Yeah, I mean, they're going to outlaw this. I can understand if they say, okay, we're going to make it illegal for you to produce a pocket-sized nuclear weapon that you you can carry in your purse and like just set off a nuclear holocaust or something while you're walking down the street. No, right? There, There is a proper scope of regulation of weapons in a country with government, and I do think government is a good thing. So I'm not anti-government. I'm not an anarchist of any kind, but I nonetheless think it should be perfectly legal for us to have these devices. Why? Because there is a profound value in having the privacy, knowing that you are the only one who can access some data, some very important and very personal data on your phone that not even the company, the tech company itself, not Apple, not any of the cellular service providers, anybody else can access certain data that is on your phone. That is a tremendous value for human life. And we'll, like I said, we'll talk a little bit about some of the collateral damage when you lose it in a second. Um, but my point here, this is, this is outrageous. Um, you knew this was going to happen, though. He's going to start with terrorism. He's going to bring in a little child pornography to really get your sympathies going. And then he's going to tell you why we need this to enforce the tax laws. Because how dare you keep more of your own money that is evil. 
Justice Department has sought to frame the Apple case not as one about undermining encryption. Instead, they want a uh, non-encryption. They just want to, uh, you know, get by this non-encryption barrier on one of the iPhones. Um, but yeah, it's you know, it's just about this. And we just have to balance. He says, uh, Obama concludes, my conclusion so far is you cannot take an absolutist view, end quote. This idea that you can balance rights. You're not going to enforce somebody's right to property, somebody's right to earn an honest living on a free market. You can't enforce that fully. Apple shouldn't be allowed to offer certain products that for the most part, are going to be used for law-abiding purposes. And many people have made the, you know, the analogy. The fact that terrorists sometimes use General Motors cars doesn't mean that General Motors is somehow obligated to design a certain you know, way to stop the cars or something just for the government to use at great expense to itself, et cetera. That's all there is to it. Um, so this is horribly unjust by Obama. He's revealing his hand. Um, I think he's revealing his hand too soon. Maybe he's getting cocky and he thinks he can just get away with this. Maybe he knows when he's sitting at South by Southwest in Austin, a bunch of them are liberals and they think that tax evasion is evil. Just like Drudge thinks, by the way. Drudge, you know, the populist that he is, puts a lot of stuff out there against Apple and other tech companies who actually try to dodge uh, some of the tax burden that they are unjustly foisted uh, have foisted on them by the government. So there is a lot of this sort of accepting taxes as a fact of life, as a moral duty to pay your taxes. They don't even question the morality of this institution. And so Obama just cashes in on this. Yeah, you know, terrorism, child pornography, and uh, tax evasion. Morally equivalent, according to Obama, and I say no. And and I use this as an example you know, to, where you can say, look, if you have taxation seen as moral in a society and then you think you're going to uphold rights to property or privacy, anything else, consistently, you're not going to do it. Why? Because those evil tax evaders, we have to catch them. <laughs> Motive power says theft evasion is evil. Yeah, apparently, according to Obama, apparently he thinks that a bunch of people at South by Southwest will agree with him that that's a receptive audience. We know that, you know, again, Drudge has posted a number of headlines implying that he believes it's bad for companies to figure out how to get out of paying more taxes than uh, they're legally required to. Matt in the chat room says, the founders were aware of such taxation and they rejected it. The income tax was a, quote, temporary measure to pay for the Civil War. Yeah. Um you know, there's a there's a little meme that's going around right now on social media, and it's pretty awesome. It started out with just one meme that I saw, and it was a picture of a woman and man cuddling in bed, and it was um, not all men want sex all the time. I can't remember the exact words, but the, you know, men don't. Not all men want sex all the time. They just want to uh, cuddle and I think be told that you love them and that taxation is theft, right? So it's just this random taxation is theft is put in at the end. And now there's a whole bunch of these memes out there. The latest one that I saw was, you know, here's the great things you should tell to your children. And it was all of this really nice, quaint advice that you would give to your kids or, you know, very encouraging, positive messages you would share with your kids. And then at the end, it would be interrupted with taxation is theft. And it 
it's great just to kind of see this go out out there and, and have some play. I don't know if it's circulating beyond, you know, the, the so-called converted on Facebook or not, if it's getting out beyond that, but it is a lot of fun. So have fun with that. Share it around if you've been seeing that around on social media, Facebook, Twitter, whatever. Check it out. So Obama, South by Southwest, shows us that, um, you know, if you do have a system in which taxation is seen as moral and legal, theft is legalized, theft by government is legalized, don't expect to enjoy privacy. You're not going to be able to do it because, you know, at some point the government is going to say, hey, we're entitled to that information about you. You might be evading your taxes and how horrible that would be. Um, I'm going to get to the issue about the consequences of surveillance in a second. I want to dive right into the the Billy Budd issue. So let me tell you about Billy Budd, and this is going to be off the top of my brain because I've left the the book at school, but it's had a profound effect on me, so I think I'm going to remember everything relevant to, to this discussion. So Billy Budd is described as the handsome sailor, and you you know the all throughout he's described as what you might call an innocent barbarian, a noble savage. He is uncultured, unsophisticated, not educated. I believe he was illiterate. He is nonetheless very moral, very innocent. And physically, he's an almost perfect specimen. Melville describes him in great detail, the handsome sailor. Um, And initially, when you meet him at the beginning, he is working on a merchant ship, and that merchant ship is called the Rights of Man. And I don't remember exactly the particular role he played, and I'm not really familiar with all the roles that sailors play on ships anyway, or that they did play on ships. But um, when Billy Budd was on this ship, the captain of the Rights of Man credited Billy Budd with in effect, being a unifying force among the rest of the men working on the ship, that he was popular. It wasn't like he preached in any way that people should get along with each other, but somehow the fact that he was there and that he was well-liked served as a unifying, calming presence on the ship. So he's just a benevolent, innocent guy. The one thing that Melville tells you is that he's got a little bit of a tick, and that is that if he gets really flustered, he develops a stutter, and sometimes if he's really, really flustered, he can't even speak at all. And So it's a speech impediment. And Melville tells you this. Basically, he's saying that this is a flaw that, you know, basically I couldn't have a flawless character. And you could say also the fact that he wasn't educated was a flaw, but Melville thinks the fact that he wasn't corrupted by civilization is actually a good thing, or at least he seems to describe it as a good thing. But he gives Billy Budd this flaw, and then he says, well, the fact that he has this, you know that Billy Budd is no conventional hero and that this book is no romance, that it's not going to be a romance. So then you get the warning very early on that something not good is going to happen. So Billy Budd is on this ship, and what happens is... There is at the time an institution in England that they called impressment. And impressment is basically the draft to get people to go into the Navy. But the way that this was carried out is a lieutenant from a naval warship would just go on to one of these merchant ships, 
totally uninvited. The captain of the merchant ship was required to play the good host, to give the guy some alcohol even, to sit there and drink with him and listen to the guy. Anyway, lieutenant comes on, and he wants to take one of the men off of the rights of man, the, the ship called the rights of man. Line them all up. For whatever reason, the guy arbitrarily decides to take Billy Budd without hardly any examination. He can just tell by the way Billy Budd looks that this would be somebody valuable to bring on to a naval warship. Billy Budd, very amicable, not one to make waves. He says, okay, you know, he's going to go along. Uh, the only scuffle was that he wanted to bring a trunk that had all his belongings that he had kept on the rights of man. Oh, no, 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 you know, when you go to a naval ship, all you can have is a bag. And so he had to shift his things. He wasn't so happy about that, but he, he made no fuss at all. No complaints at all. The only thing that happened is when Billy Budd is on the little boat going from the rights of man to the warship, which I believe is called the Bellipotent, um, he stands. He, he's saying goodbye to everybody, and everybody loves him, so they're all saying goodbye. And then I think he stands up at a certain point and he says, "And goodbye to the rights of man, the, you know, the ship as such." And he's so innocent that you couldn't really understand it in the way that it was probably really meant by Melville. Billy Budd couldn't do this, um, but it is. It's goodbye to the rights of man. Why? Because Billy Budd is being impressed into service for the English Navy. So then he gets on to the ship and everybody loves Billy Budd there. He's not necessarily, you know, the big fish in a small pond than he was on the merchant ship, the rights of man. This is a much bigger ship. There's a whole lot of very talented sailors. I guess some of them are also good looking and handsome and everything else, but nonetheless, he was very well liked. Uh, but there was one exception. There is a position on a ship called a master at arms, and there's a whole diversion, you know, a whole um, you know, sidetracking that Melville does at a certain point, describing the fact that master at arms used to teach everybody on the ship about hand-to-hand -hand combat and how to use swords and things like this. But since the invention of gunpowder the master at arms really doesn't have to do this anymore because there's not so much hand-to-hand -hand combat anymore. You're using, you know, cannon and, and guns and things like that. So the master at arms becomes, in effect, a police chief for the ship. And for whatever reason, they don't really tell you the reason. Some of the literary critics speculate it's because this guy is homosexual and maybe he's jealous because Billy Budd is so good looking or he's attracted to Billy Budd and he's frustrated because he can't do anything about it. Who knows? But they say, okay, he's got it out for Billy Budd. Um, and it turns out that he gets some of his subordinates to frame Billy Budd for minor offenses of the type that you can get in trouble on a naval ship for, like not making your bed properly or storing your belongings improperly or whatever. So little infractions. And Billy Budd can't understand it because he is just the most amicable guy. He's trying his hardest. In fact, there was an incident that Melville tells you about early on where Billy Budd had watched somebody get punished for some infraction and had resolved that he's going to be the best and he's never going to get in trouble. So he was really trying hard not to get in trouble. And he found himself getting in trouble. Why? Not through his actions, but because he was being framed for all this stuff. 
Um, he talks to an older man on the ship. The old dancer is, is what he's called. And the old dancer says, oh, yeah, you know, Clagger, the master at arms, he has it out for you. And this is inconceivable to Billy Bud. Billy Bud cannot imagine. He's so innocent. He can't imagine anyone having it out for him. He's even more puzzled than he is before. Uh, then there's a couple more little incidents. But one big thing that happens is that uh, Claggart tries to set Billy Bud up as fomenting mutiny on the ship. And part of the background that Melville gives you about the time is that mutiny was a huge problem and that there had recently been a big mutiny on one of the naval warships and that all of the captains, all of the English captains, were aware of the omnipresent danger of mutiny, that mutiny was always a problem. So if you were suspected of mutiny, you could get in huge, huge trouble. And he wants to get Billy Budd in trouble, this Claggart guy. So he has some... um, you know, he has some uh, subordinate go and talk to Billy Bud and basically suggest mutiny and suggest that he can get some money for it, flash a little bit of money in front of him. But Billy Bud's having none of it, very quickly stops the conversation, goes away, and he never ends up doing any of the things that you might suspect a person might do after that. He doesn't try later to go out of curiosity and talk to this guy and say, what, you know, what were you trying to do? Um, he keeps to himself. So there's just this one attempt at a conversation. Billy Bud keeps to himself after that. And then uh, Claggart is just getting really frustrated. He's going to have to do more if he's going to want to frame uh, Billy Bud. So he goes, Claggart goes directly to the captain, Captain Veer. And we're told a lot of things about about Captain Veer. He is very well read. He is not just a good seaman, but he's also a great judge of character of, of men in general. That he, along with Claggart, Claggart, we're told, can uniquely appreciate the character of Billy Budd, the unique value of Billy Budd, how great he is in effect. You know, this this noble savage character of Billy Budd. Um, Veer understands it too, but Claggart goes to Veer and tries to say that Billy Budd is fomenting mutiny on Veer's ship. Um, The more that the conversation goes on, Veer is in his mind saying, oh, I I can't even believe this of this guy. And in fact, Melville tells you that when Veer heard about Billy Budd standing up in that little ship and saying goodbye to the rights of man, a lot of captains would say, oh, that's a horrible act of insubordination and it shows that he's going to be uh, you know, a terrible seaman and stuff, that Veer actually respected that insofar as he thought maybe Billy Budd understood anything about the rights of man and what was going on. So Veer is very sympathetic to Billy Budd. He is not sympathetic to Claggart for whatever reason. He doesn't like the guy. You're never given the exact reason about Claggart's background as to why you shouldn't like him, but there's plenty apparently not, not to like. So what Veer decides to do is he's going to have Claggart and Billy Bud face-to-face in his cabin and make Claggart repeat the charges of you know, fomenting mutiny uh, with Billy Bud there and have Billy Bud answer for it. And at this point, Veer is not aware of Billy Bud's speech impediment. So when he does this, sets it up, 
And, you know, he's trying to keep everything as quiet as possible, right? Because any hint of, you know, mutiny or insubordination or problems could actually instigate a mutiny that hasn't already been started. So he's trying to keep this all hush-hush. So he just has the two of them in his cabin. And Claggart repeats the charges. And Billy Budd, you know, per his speech impediment, he's flustered. He can't say anything. And at first, when Veer doesn't understand, he sort of yells at him and says, you know, speak, speak. And then he understands that this is an impediment of Billy Budd. And then he tries to be understanding and it's calm, you know, it's okay, take your time, speak. And that, I guess, made Billy Budd even more flustered. And, of course, he was already flustered at the injustice of Claggart suggesting that he had, um, you know, committed this mutiny or this fomenting of mutiny. So what is what does he do? Billy Budd, he's so flustered, he can't speak in his own defense. He knows that Claggart's being unjust. He punches him. He punches him. And he punches him so hard, it's a knockout punch. Claggart dies just from this one blow. It was an amazing, I guess, an amazingly uh, hard blow. So now there's Veer, Captain Veer. He's got Claggart on the ground, dead. Billy Budd there. He knew that Billy Budd was innocent. He understood also the reason why Billy Budd did what he did and that he didn't intend to kill Claggart, that he was just so frustrated that he couldn't speak and defend himself against this unjust accusation that he decked Claggart. But now what is he going to do? And it turns out that he calls together what is called a drumhead court. And it is composed of three different, you know, uh, officers on the ship. And they all come together. And essentially what Claggart does, I mean, not Claggart, what Veer does, what Captain Veer does, is he tells them, you must set aside your feelings about Billy Budd. You must even set aside your judgments of personal conscience. So your feelings, your personal conscience, those are to be set aside. The thing that you must look at is the letter of the law that applies to naval ships at the time, right? The the military law of the time. Because the most important thing, of course, is to be loyal to the crown and apply the, the maritime law at the time. So the maritime law, according to that, what had Billy Budd done he had struck a superior officer, and the superior officer died. The consequence of that is he died, and this is a capital offense. And Veer, regardless of his own feelings about Billy Budd's innocence, the case, apparently there had been an option. They could have just held Billy Budd and then waited till they got on shore and have some sort of admiral try the case when they got on shore. He didn't do any of this. Why didn't he do any of this? Because he feared mutiny. He feared if he did not act swiftly and basically give everybody on the ship the idea that if there was any hint of mutiny, that the perpetrators would be punished swiftly and harshly. If he didn't do that, then there would be a mutiny. And, um, of course, part of the danger of that is the captain himself might lose his own life, right? So they're a little bit afraid for their own lives in this circumstance. Um, he also potentially, this is hinted by Melville, he would understand that Billy Budd, he thought Billy Budd would understand the necessity to carry out the harsh sentence of this. So he ends up 
essentially directing the drumhead court. Supposedly he's hired, you know, he's uh, brought this court together so that they can try the case. But as you see throughout the whole proceeding, he is directing them. He's giving them very, very leading jury instructions, telling them how to analyze this. And they say, okay, well, despite their own misgivings, they have misgivings too. They don't believe that Billy Budd intended to kill Claggart, that he is anybody who would ever foment mutiny, etc. Nonetheless, they decide to find him guilty. And what do they do? The very next morning, they hang him. They kill this young guy. I mean, he's, I don't know, somewhere between 19 and 22 or something. He's just a young guy. And, uh, and, And that's what they do. Now, why am I talking about Billy Budd in the context of this other story and how does this do with the unity of rights. The thing that the standard interpretations of Melville won't say is that, of course, there's going to be injustice in a situation like this, that the idea of actually having um, you know, the proper procedures followed in a criminal prosecution, for example, innocent until proven guilty, um, you know, having law that looks not only at the bare physical facts of what happened, but looks at the intent behind it and the motive and, and et cetera. Um, you wouldn't even call it attempted murder in this case. He was, it was a battery. Uh, so you could say, okay, it was, um, you know, manslaughter, say, Maybe that would be a, a just sentence, but that wouldn't necessarily be a capital offense. Uh, but the the you know if you think that you can get justice in the environment at the time where mutiny is such a risk, you cannot right. And throughout, you see that there are various people who have misgivings about what is going on, right? So Captain Veer, he knows that Billy Budd is is really innocent and that he doesn't deserve to be killed. Nonetheless, he presses on. The members of the drumhead court know that Billy Budd shouldn't be killed, and yet he presses on. All the people on the ship who have to gather and watch Billy Budd be hanged, they know that Billy Budd cannot be guilty of this, and yet they just sit there and watch it happen. Um, Moreover, there is a chaplain and we're told by Melville in some great detail about the visits of the chaplain to Billy Budd and how the chaplain consciously entertains the misgivings about what is happening to Billy Budd. He knows that Billy Budd is innocent. In, in fact, he is so amazed. It's like he's never encountered somebody this innocent. Um, Sally in the chat room is reminding me of, of the line, the last words of Billy Budd. And this is this is where you just get so, so upset and mad at what is happening here. Because Billy Budd's last words are, God bless Captain Veer. God bless Captain Veer uh, before he's hung because of the actions of Captain Veer. It's so sad and so infuriating that this innocent person is made to be sacrificed in, in the situation. Okay, punish him for a battery, but you know there he wasn't. He he was doing it because of his impediment. He even said, you know, he wouldn't have done it except for the fact that he couldn't speak. If he was able to defend himself, then he wouldn't have gotten so frustrated and, and decked this guy. So certainly the the worst is you get some sort of voluntary manslaughter in a just system. But 
what kind of system are we dealing with? We're dealing with a you know, a system of maritime law in which impressment is legal. Impressment, otherwise slavery, otherwise known as slavery, right? At any point, the British Navy can commandeer an individual and bring him into service on a military warship. That is slavery. And of course, if you are going to have a bunch of people working for you against their will, there's a huge danger of mutiny. And yes, sometimes it actually comes to fruition and there's a horrible mutiny. And captains, maybe even better captains, people who are trying to be as good as possible, like Captain Veer, those people can get killed. So in this climate, someone like Captain Veer, and, and again, when uh, when we learn about the chaplain's misgivings and then the fact that he doesn't voice his misgivings about what's being done to Billy Bud, why is the chaplain refraining from doing this? He says, because if he goes to Veer and says, hey, why are you doing this to Billy Bud?" He's very innocent. He doesn't deserve this. That the chaplain is scared that he would be accused of starting starting a mutiny or of having some sort of mutinous intent. Nobody wants to buck the system. And Veer himself, who has the authority to do something, he is so scared that if he doesn't, again, come down on somebody who is even hinting at mutiny very swiftly, very harshly, then it's going to create this climate where the other sailors on the ship think that they can get away with something and maybe they will start a real mutiny. And that's his fear. So in order to achieve law and order in this system built upon slavery, you have to commit a horrible injustice and sacrifice the life of this noble savage who has been praised throughout the book by Melville as an almost perfect hero, right? He can't be exactly perfect. In the chat room, some people are, are reacting to this. Yeah, hatred of the good for being the good. There's some of that. And the hatred of the good for being the good could be the motive of Claggart in framing Billy Bud. It's it's not exactly uh, sure. Um, selfishness says the ship was at a state of war with mutiny in the fleet, but yet the rights of man are still important. Yes, and so the injustice is so real. It's true. Uh, and again, why do you have mutiny? Now, you could have mutiny in a fleet where everybody was enlisted voluntarily. You could have a mutiny in that case. But it would be when those people were being treated really unjustly. What you do know is that there's a much bigger chance of mutiny when the whole foundation of it is impressment, where these people are there through you know, no will of their own, no choice of their own. And... You know, here you have this guy who himself, I mean, if anybody was a perfect specimen in this system, somebody who, you know, and, and again, I think um, there's the whole reflection of Veer when he's here, when he's listening to Claggart accuse Billy Bud of mutiny. He's thinking about Billy Bud and just saying, what a great catch this guy was because he's so perfect. He has, he's, you know, strong and able, and he just takes orders and acts on them. He doesn't question it. He's got just enough knowledge to make him valuable, but not too much to make him dangerous. I mean, here's this guy. It's like the dream come true for a captain like Captain Veer. And Captain Veer has to sacrifice him, the best of the best in this system, because the whole system is built on a horribly 
unjust, evil foundation, which is slavery. Matt says that the British would impress American sailors, which was one of the major issues leading up to the War of 1812. Yeah, and I think I remember reading some of that in Billy Budd as well, which is now where I'm filling in the holes in my history education, right? Because um, I don't know that I got all of that as I traveled around when I was a, a kid. And I can, I can talk about the holes in my education another time, but I was in public schools all over the country, moved a lot, and so I ended up with a lot of holes. Father, forgive them, is uh, Sally is quoting that, and I'm not sure if that's what the um, the chaplain says. That he may indeed say that in the movie. Uh, the, the movie, I'm interested to see the movie version just to see how it compares to the book. If people in the chat room here have seen the movie version, let me know if it was made real to you, this environment of constant fear of mutiny as the cause. And if the movie also allowed you to connect the institution of impressment to that fear, you know, that omnipresent fear of mutiny that existed. Because to me, it, you know, it, it's just obvious. You, you can't have justice. You cannot have an idea that somebody's going to be treated fairly in a criminal justice system while that entire system is built on slavery. I do have a call here. If you do want to call in and talk, this is a great time to do it. 760-888-5817. And if you get connected, then you're supposed to press 1, and that'll let me know that you want to talk. I've got one person who's got the little question icon on, so I'm going to get you on the line. Hi, you're live on Hi, the air. Who's this? Hi. Is this? Oh, it's Harold. I'm doing fine. Yeah. So how are you? Li- are you liking my little diversion today? I like it a lot, and it, and I remembered seeing the movie. You brought it, it, kind of came back to my memory. I saw it on Netflix probably about a year ago. It was okay. in black and white and very memorable, and it it felt very real, and it was very sad at the end. So it, the movie was really well done. It's worth watching. Uh, were you here earlier, Harold, when I was talking about the uh, Obama speech at South by Southwest and integrating that to this theme? Yeah, he wants to impress. He wants to do impressment on the on the engineers so that force them to help uh, put holes in in the in, in the um, Apple products. Actually, actually, the, the the analogy now that I would draw it in terms of what was going on in Billy Bud is that all of us have been impressed to service of the federal government via the system of involuntary taxation. And it's in this environment that you can expect other forms of justice, perhaps not so stark as we're all going to be hung tomorrow morning, right? But insofar as they're really trying to take away one of the last bastions of privacy that we have left in the digital age, which is the encryption of our devices. So that's my parallel with that story. I've got a couple other stories that I'm going to bring in to this theme yeah. as well. Um, but yeah, are, the, are you wanting are you wanting to talk election? A couple. I, I just want to talk on this first. This is the the engineers threatening to mutiny at Apple. That that kind of ties in. That ties in with the whole mutiny theme here. They literally are going to mutiny if 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 they are forced into service to to create a uh, basically a routine that will you know, help uh, crack the, the the system. 
So they don't I, want I lo- to do I it. To- story. This is a, a story that people were passing to me through. Uh, it was from the New York Times. Yeah. Apple encryption engineers, if ordered to unlock iPhone, might resist. People can find that story, by the way, in the program notes. Don't yeah. let it go. And then, uh, and then, of course, John Oliver did his whole encryption thing, which is up to four million hits now. Oh, God, I haven't seen it. I have to go see it because he's so excellent sometimes. Oh, he was very funny. The other one, the, the, the Drumpf one is up to 12 million, and the encryption one's at 4 million. So everyone's seeing it. Um, just on the on the election thing, I mean, when I saw Cruz in his, in his gray suit, remember when he made his speech at the end the other night? And he's on the screen in his gray suit, and I thought he looked like a guy from 1920 could step outside and get into his Model T Ford. I mean, just the fashion statement looked just like that. But that's probably what we need. We need another Kelvin Coolidge, and I think he's, we we he's, need somebody really classy. There's a video that's going around on Facebook, and as I understand, it's just posted on Facebook, which is why I didn't include it in the program notes. But it is Cruz arguing with someone about the issue of climate change, so-called climate change, and the you know the government wanting to take over our lives in the name of climate change. And apparently he does a really excellent job, so that, that's that's worth checking out too. But I got I got pretty down about the election this week. I'm has, yeah, has, Ruby, has Rubio endorsed I have, Cruz? I, I hear there's rumors that there's that he's, he's going done, to. He's done he's done a half endorsement. He's still he's still crying, but let him let him let him heal a little first. You know, <laughs> he's not quite over his his be, he's being beaten up in Florida yet, so he's still recover in recovery, so to speak. Cruz's wife was very good in Chicago. Heidi was at some pre- some club there, and she she said to them, "We're talking about the income tax." And she says, "You know, the income tax has only been around for like you know a very short time. The IRS has not been in 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 existence for very long. So you know, the, we really didn't have a need for it before." Actually, about a hundred years, right? Wasn't it 1916 that we got that amendment? Wilson. It was Wilson. Right? It was the Fed, Federal Reserve, and the income tax. It all happened yeah. at the same time. Yeah. It was all all the bad things that happened when the Republican Party split into two pieces and the Democrats got in temporarily. Mm. So you know we're kind of in those days again. If you, you can right. feel it. Um, I'm not pessimistic about Cruz. I think this is a goldmine of data. Every single result, just me as a complete amateur looking at the data, I'm seeing patterns. I'm seeing Cruz being plus three with women over men, and the others like plus seven, um, Rubio plus five, but uh, Trump is like a minus eight. So that's already giving you an idea where to redirect your resources. The Cruz calls should be going to women first, and if there's time left over, then you call the men afterwards. You do it in that order. Also, the age groups. Obviously, Cruz people are younger. The Trump people are older, white, male I call them knuckleheads. I mean, if you've ever seen them, you know, they are real. They want to break heads. I mean, that that looks like the type to me, you know. They're just the right-wing version of the left-wing knuckleheads. So, I, anyway, um, what's coming up is Colorado, and mm-hmm. not Colorado, uh, Utah, which Cruz will win, I have no doubt. And well, then, but what about, what about Kasich? Because Kasich is trying to wrench himself in there and be a spoiler, in effect. That's what I'm reading. I, I think Kasich is angling for VP, and I don't trust him. He's this passive-aggressive, sneaky, dishonest guy, and he is probably trying to do a deal with Trump. I, I absolutely have no trust in him whatsoever. I'm very—you have to keep an eye on him. He's up to no good. 
But the good news is on the delegates. The delegates are good because Rubio's 170 or whatever delegates are almost all going to go to Cruz. And plus there's about another eight or nine that will go to Cruz. Um, Carson's delegates will go to Trump. And the old, it all depends on what Kasich's delegates are. So I'd like to keep Kasich's delegates down as well as Trump's because you never know in the end he might double-cross everyone. I don't trust him. So, But Cruz will win Utah, I have no doubt. And on the Arizona, Arizona kind of feels like Florida to me. A lot of older retired people. So mm-hmm. I'm I'm worried Trump might take Arizona. I hope he doesn't. Yikes. But that's my feeling on it. Um, the thing, the, the thing that we need to do, and this is I, I can't I don't want to talk strategy on the air, but we need a project to do California. Right. And there's still over a month to go. You can't you can't make calls the last week because people are so pissed off they won't even pick up the phone the last week. But from now until like about a week before the election in California, now's the mm-hmm. time when a, a big project is needed. And you need people that are not religious because Cruz has all the churches organized. You need libertarians and e- economic students, and those are the kind of people we need to making calls to people on the coastline in California, the more more liberal people. Right. Cruz will take the interior. He knows how to work all the religious people. But well, I, I, know, I know the perfect angle, you know, to use with Californians, and it, it, it hits us where we live, especially Southern Californians. There's a story oh, yeah, that I, the water, yeah, yes, water and electricity. Uh, there's that, and then there's a news story that I just posted yesterday, and it, I guess it's, I mean, it's not big news except for the fact that year after year after year we keep being uh, determined to be the number one. Los Angeles area is number one in traffic over the entire country. And, um, you know, if if we get to a climate where these Democrats are no longer in charge and are spoiling this wonderful place to live that potentially could be California with, you know, burdens of traffic and all these other things because of the Democratic... uh, Yeah, Detroit with palm trees. I swear. I mean, not not that bad yet, obviously, but, but... Yeah. No, I meant it in a good way. Remember the Mad Men when when the guy was sent out to L.A. to organize in L.A. and, and right. he said, "Well, it's just Detroit with palm trees." In other uh, words, he wanted to be in New York, and this was banishment. Yes. Um, can you can you see my phone number on your caller ID there? Yes, I do. Can you write it down on a oh, piece of paper and write my name down? I'm I'm I looking around to... here for a pen. I'm gonna I'm gonna email. This to myself. That's that's my new. No, 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 no. I don't. I don't want you to do that. I don't. Oh, want you don't want me to do it. that. Okay, you want me to write down I, on a piece of paper. I yes, understand. write it down on a piece of paper, and then I want okay, you. Okay, let to me call get a pen. Okay, I have pen. I almost have paper. Mm-hmm. I want you to go okay. old, old school. Just write, write, write down the call ID information. Okay. And if you can just call me for, a, I need to talk to you for five minutes after the show. Okay. I got so it, Harold. Give me, give, me, give me a call after the show. Okay, thanks. Thanks Bye. very much, Harold. You take care. Okay, someone who takes privacy seriously is always a welcome thing. Detroit with palm trees. They like that there in the chat room. Um, yeah, Ed says nothing the president can do about traffic, a local fare. No, of course that's true. But to the extent that there is federal government involvement in giving highway money and all this kind of stuff 
there could be ways that the whole relationship could be. Uh, but you know, again, we're just we're just gonna be talking about changing the whole culture of government in this country. Which I think, if we had Cruz as a president, it would have effects not just through the federal government, but people would start to see the benefits and maybe start electing better governors at the state level as well. That would be really nice. Now they're talking about delegate details here in the chat room as well. Delegates are not appointed by the campaign, but the party. They could be legally bound to vote for Trump, et cetera. So th that's the election. And by the way, I haven't really kept up too much with election news this week because I was pretty disheartened by the results on Tuesday. And in fact, my big reaction was to post three different pieces of music. One, the pity party version. The other was the catharsis version. And then the third was accept the things you cannot change, change the subject version. And that's where I am now is just trying to talk about other things a bit. I do still hope that there's a way for Cruz to get the nomination. The yucky story that I saw today was uh, that the spokesman for the RNC says that the RNC, the party, the party, so to speak, would support Trump 100% if he is the nominee. And my one question is, what would the party consist of? such that the party would support Trump 100%. Maybe you'll have a fraction of the former GOP left there to support Trump 100%. I say good luck. There's a lot of us who will never support Trump for even 0.01%. A lot of us in the, in that camp. So anyway, let's go, uh, go back to the theme, right? So again, what I'm trying to show here through Billy Budd that I talked about earlier and through that story of Obama speaking at South by Southwest is this idea that if you have an environment in which you think you're going to selectively infringe one right of an individual or of people generally, right, you know, a system, and then you think that there's going to be enforcement of rights consistently throughout the rest of the system that you can get away with that, you're wrong. And in Billy Budd, you had this system where impressment, you know, slavery in effect, was moral and legal. And as a consequence, you had this environment of mutiny, and therefore nobody could achieve a just criminal trial. That was not allowed. That was uh, not uh, even you know, feasible in that environment. And Billy Budd had to be sacrificed. Billy Budd, who was probably the prime specimen to be subservient under a system like that, a system of impressment, the best of the best had to be sacrificed. And, you know, in the case of the Obama speech, it is the fact that we all live in a system of impressment because we are forced to pay taxes to government against our will. They're taking money that we earned as a result of our productive efforts, and they're taking it against our will. And if you think in that system that we can have, for example, privacy in our devices, you can't. And that's why he's pressing now to try to force Apple and other tech companies to manufacture these devices in such a way that the government has an automatic backdoor to it as immoral, should be illegal, certainly unjust, and it's made possible because of this other injustice. So let me give you a third story. And third story is thanks to Tim Sandifer. Tim Sandifer, you might have known from his work at the Pacific Legal Foundation, and he is 
also an author on a book about the Constitution. I think it's Conscious of the Constitution, if I get it right. But I'm sorry, Tim, if I'm misrepresenting it. If you listen, I don't know if he listens to my show. Tim has agreed to be on my show a couple weeks from today on the 1st of April, and we're going to talk about property rights. But the story that he shared on Twitter this morning is relevant to today's theme, and it's a story actually that was written by his wife, Christina Sandifer. They are a pair of high-powered, awesomely smart, cool attorneys, the two of them together, and they go out there and do some awesome battle. This is from the Federalist Society website, and the headline is, FDA's Amarin Settlement Fails to Establish Clear Guidelines for Speech. And Christina writes, uh, it's a shame that in a nation that prizes free speech, the government routinely censors the communication of valuable and truthful information that could help save people's lives. But it's a fact. She says federal law strictly limits how pharmaceutical companies, those with the most knowledge about drugs and their possible uses and side effects, can share information about the legal use of their products. In this area, as Wayne State University professor Peter Henning put it, quote, speaking the truth can violate the law, end quote. This type of speech, uh, speech is often referred to as, quote, off-label use because it involves the use of legally approved medicines to treat conditions other than what the Food and Drug Administration approved the medicine to treat. For example, a drug the FDA approved as a pain reliever might also work for off-label use as a sleep aid or an allergy medicine. She says these off-label prescriptions are entirely legal. In fact, about one in five prescriptions are off-label today. Nevertheless, she says, the FDA subjects companies and their representatives who promote or advertise a drug's off-label use to prosecution for the crime of, quote, misbranding. In other words, while the drug is legal, and prescribing it for off-label use is legal, it's not legal to talk about prescribing the drug for, quote, off-label use. You can't talk about it. No free speech. As a result, she says, doctors and patients may never learn of effective alternate uses for legally approved medications. So your right to speak, your right to obtain information, your right to liberty to determine what your medical treatment is going to consist of is going to be infringed. Why? Because the FDA has decided that these companies cannot speak about these off-label uses. Your, their freedom of speech is being infringed. Their right to freedom of speech is being infringed. She says, and pharmaceutical companies wanting to promote their products by sharing truthful scientific information about off-label uses face harsh criminal penalties. FDA, their rationale is somehow they're protecting you. Uh, you're being exploited by these drug companies. My answer is if you know the drug companies put this information out there and it is fraudulent, then they can be held liable for fraud. But if they're telling the truth, all they're doing is enhancing their brand, so to speak. Why shouldn't they be entitled to do that? So if, if you take away freedom of speech from these drug companies and you think that you're going to be able to do that out of context and still enforce all the other rights of other people, you're wrong. Why? Because first of all, the right of the drug company and the people who invest in the drug company to make a fair and honest return on their investment has been infringed because 
there is value that they have created in the form of these drugs. And it's value that they are not allowed to fully realize because they're not allowed to talk about the value that exists in these drugs. So their right to dispose of their property in ways that can enhance their lives has been infringed. Um, And if you talk about the patients and the doctors, the doctor's right to pursue his profession in the way that he thinks will be of the best value to his patients, that will give him the most career satisfaction by educating people about these off-label uses, that is going to be impacted. And in terms of patients, patients could themselves exercise their right to liberty, freedom of association, freedom of contract, in order to get this information about ways that they can use these perfectly legal drugs to enhance their lives, make their lives better. But no, their access to this information and therefore their ability to use these drugs in ways that might be beneficial to them is being restricted. Why? Because the FDA thinks that it is evil for a corporation like a pharmaceutical company to actually use speech to speak like anybody else. And, you know, this is this is something we've also seen recently with the energy companies. Hillary Clinton has been one of the politicians who's talked about punishing oil companies and others simply because those companies dare to defend themselves by putting information out there that denies the catastrophic effects of so-called climate change, right? The whole climate change agenda is something that is going to destroy the value of these oil companies if the politicians get their way. And politicians want to muzzle the oil companies from defending themselves in terms of actually questioning whether all these catastrophic predictions about climate change are true. Same thing they're doing to these companies, you know, these pharmaceutical companies. They're saying, no, yeah, sure, that these are legal, but we're not going to allow you to talk about them. We're not going to allow you to brand yourself. People in the chat room are starting to talk a little bit about Garland, the Obama nominee for the Supreme Court. And I actually do have a way to tie him into this theme, but I did not... Um, I, I did not, um, you know, include that in the program notes for today because I need to do some more research on Garland. I was reading a comment by Ed on Garland in the chat room, and he says, there is no chance whatsoever of this restriction on freedom of speech being overturned if Garland comes on the Supreme Court. So that's useful to know that Garland himself doesn't believe that corporations have a right to free speech that is the same as anybody else. You know, again, if the corporation is putting fraudulent information out there, Go ahead and let them be tried in a court of law for fraud. But if it's not, right, if it's not, then leave them alone. Let them exercise their right to free speech just like everybody else. Yes, even if it makes them rich, even if it does that. The other thing that I've heard people talk about Garland uh, about is the issue of the Second Amendment, And you could talk about the fact that if our Second Amendment rights are curtailed and not upheld, then that's going to have other sorts of consequences where we can't be expected to be fairly and justly treated by our government in in other contexts. And, you know, 
right to property, of course, is one thing that you would say. Why don't I have a right to legally own a weapon that I can use in self-defense? It is my property. But, you know, the the idea that they think somehow it, it all had to do with militias and those are a thing of the past and everything else. If Garland is one of those, then the idea that you are going to be able to have a, a climate of justice under a Supreme Court that doesn't uphold the Second Amendment, we're going to be in trouble. Uh, Matt says, if Garland was on the court instead of Scalia, Heller would never have been one. The template for this, Rob says, is tobacco. Yeah, tobacco would be the same thing. But you, you, you can see the theme, and you can see it everywhere. The Once you have this climate where the government is able to initiate force against citizens, not necessarily by directly enslaving you, like in Billy Bud, the you know, the institution of impressment, but in all the other ways that our government is telling us what we can or cannot do and in a certain way enslaving us by taking the money that results from our productive efforts. In this environment, there are going to be effects on other rights. You cannot enforce rights fully and properly in isolation from all the others. And that's what I mean by this idea of the unity of of rights. Um, I've got a couple callers online, but nobody has said that they want to talk at all. If you do want to call in and talk, 760-888-5817 is the number. I'm going to take one sip of water here, and then we're going to get into the rest of the stories that I have. That's pretty much all that I've got on the theme, but I'm sure it's something that you can bring me some examples to don'tletitgo.com and post in the in the comments there, and we can have more discussion about all the ways that this theme plays out today in in our country but to me that example of obama sitting there at south by southwest and by the way go check out that story um i read you a lot of of what obama said but the picture of obama how glib he looks in that picture is enough to make you vomit basically so you might want to check that out too just to go along with the the content of what i was talking to you about Okay, so looking at the rest of the program notes I've got over there at DontLetItGo.com, one thing I wanted to talk about was the chilling effect of mass surveillance story. And now I'm sitting here and I'm, my, my links are not working. So now I've got the Firefox browser and my links in my DontLetItGo.com are not working. Let me get back here. I'm going to refresh. In any event, the, the story is that there was a... a study. And the study found that when there is mass surveillance, the consequence of this is that people don't freely express their views, their controversial views, as much as they would if there wasn't surveillance. Yeah, I'm getting, if I go back to Safari, I get the spinning rainbow of death. If I'm in Firefox, I'm I'm not getting my links to work properly. So maybe I didn't post that link properly. Um, I'll go ahead and repost that link later because my other links are working. But you know, the, the whole study shows that if there's mass surveillance, if Obama gets his way in particular and our devices are cracked and everybody knows it, they're going to be silencing dissent online. And any government that is premised on taking away your rights would also like to silent, silence dissent, uh, not all of us by a long shot are anywhere as amiable and you know kind of go with the flow as Billy Bud was. We are not the 
ideal subjects for a totalitarian state the way Billy Budd pretty much was. And so they would love to silence our dissent. Billy Budd had no dissent, and, and even he was sacrificed, but they'd certainly love to silence our dissent. One good story besides the other one, I, I told you about the other one, and I was talking about this with Harold. Apple encryption engineers, if ordered to unlock the phone, might resist. And a lot of people were saying, well, you know, can you force them? You could throw them in jail, but you can't force them to write code, right? The ability to write the code is in their mind. So I would just love to watch somebody stand over an engineer with a gun and say, write code. You can't do that. You cannot force a mind. It's a really excellent example of that principle. So, yeah, they could throw them in jail for not writing the code, but the idea that you can actually, good luck forcing people to write code. If they decide to shrug, you can't do it. They could say, you tell me what to do. You tell me how to write the code, and then I'll write the code. But it reveals how much the government needs productive people, people who can create, you know, can create value in the world. And it should be a lesson to the government not to treat these people the way that they're treating them. So I hope that these engineers and Apple itself keeps resisting against this attempted takeover. Another great story in this vein is Facebook, Google, and WhatsApp plan to increase the encryption of user data. So what do you do when the government comes and threatens to break into the encryption to require backdoors? You tell them, oh, I'm so sorry, we're going to actually increase the encryption of user data. So I love all of you. I will continue to use all of you as long as you stand firm on this principle. The other story that I did talk about was um, the RNC saying it was going to support Trump 100%. I just put that there for your general, I guess, nausea-inducing story of the day. And finally, uh, with a, a couple of good stories. I think we want to talk about a couple of good news stories. There are a couple of stories that I didn't include. Uh, Bosch Faustin has posted them uh, over on Facebook. You can check those out. They're both about – actually, I'm not sure if he posted one of them, but the other one he has for sure – um, one of them is about the suspect, the the so-called third terrorist from the Garland attack. And I'm now, by Garland, I'm not talking about the Supreme Court justice, right? I'm talking about the Texas town of Garland. Almost a year ago, there was the attack on the free speech event in Garland. And there was a third jihadist who has now been found guilty, not only of conspiring to make that attack happen, but also of providing material aid to ISIS. So that was good news. And then the other story that I saw break just before the show, as it was, I was preparing for the show, was the fact that they have caught one of the primary suspects for the Paris attacks, the attacks that happened in November in Paris. I think they found this guy in Belgium or something. He was Europe's most wanted man at this point. So it, it was nice to see this. Oh, Mitt endorsed Cruz. Mitt Romney just endorsed Cruz, I'm finding out here in the chat room. That is interesting. They're saying kiss of death. A, a, a number of the establishment Republicans, I guess, are now starting to come around to Cruz, and people are saying, well, does that mean that Cruz is just a sellout? Um, does that mean basically that you know Cruz was misleading us? He really is just one of the establishment yeah, Ed says uh, Lindsey Graham-Nisty also endorsed Cruz, so that's also a disaster. 
I think maybe some people realize that even the Republican establishment or some of them are knowing that Trump would be a disaster for the GOP. Um, Sally says, yeah, they're looking to be saved. Redmond MTB in the chat room says that would be good for Cruz if it sways some voters. Lindsey Graham did the same. It, it might sway some voters. It might make them see, look, you know, Ted Cruz is not the kiss of death. So that that could be interesting. We'll see what the effect is in the upcoming states. I'm trying not to get my hopes up too much about this because I was really disappointed the other day. So let's go back to our interesting and good news that I have. A last couple stories over at DontLetItGo.com. One is... My headline is Zack Snyder considering adaptation of the Fountainhead. Some people are thinking, well, he's automatically going to adapt the Fountainhead. I don't want to either jump the gun or you might put it, you know, get your hopes up too much about it because the article, it's a Hollywood Reporter article and it talks about, you know, what things he's got going on and stuff. And all it says is that he's been kind of reading and toying with the script of the Fountainhead. It doesn't necessarily mean that anything is going to come of it, but it does mean that he's interested enough in the project to mess with the script and to talk about it during an interview. So it's a pretty hopeful sign if you think that you want Zack Snyder to direct a version of The Fountainhead. Um, One downside for me in him directing The Fountainhead is when I remember going to see Watchmen, I thought that Watchmen was gratuitously violent and gory in certain parts. Or maybe it had to be violent because violent things happen in the story. Okay, fine. But you did not have to see all of the blood and everything else as much as you did there. And I don't know how that would translate into a version of The Fountainhead. When I've posted this story on social media and said, hey, you know, what do you think Zack Snyder is looking at adapting The Fountainhead? Some people thought that was great news and some people thought that was bad news. So I think that Zack Snyder himself is sort of a polarizing figure. Ed Powell says, Fountainhead filmed in the style of 300. Think about that. And I would have to go back and look at 300 to think about that more. Um, Master of slow motion, somebody called him. Yeah, when I saw the gore in uh, Watchmen, that was disturbing to me. So... Anyway, you can think about that as you will. But the cool thing is that you have such a prominent director in Hollywood. Somebody, I guess he's the one who has directed Batman versus Superman, which is just about to be released. Big movies like this. And he's interested in remaking The Fountainhead. I think that in and of itself is an awesome sign, whether or not you think you'd be happy to do that. And finally, a feel-good story of the day is Henry Cavill is apparently, this is according to the headline, addicted to money and fame. Now, I wouldn't put it that way. Uh, I wouldn't call this an addiction in any way, shape, or form. But Cavill has come out recently in favor of actually making money as an A-list actor, that he is not apologizing for it, and in fact, he is embracing it. This is a story from Page6.com, recently published just on the 10th, of this month, I guess, as part of the publicity, you know, the interviews that he's going out there and doing. And he has no qualms about saying that he embraces and enjoys spending the money that he earns as an A-list actor. Um, okay, so finally this the story came up. I'm sitting here giving you the, the intro on and on and on. So here it is. Building his resume, 
isn't Henry Cavill's only incentive for nabbing big acting gigs. This is a quote from Cavill. He says, I'm slightly wary of saying this because it can be frowned upon, certainly by members of my community uh, and people outside my community, he says. Again, continuing with Cavill, he says, but I'm not just doing this for the art. The money's fantastic, and that's something which I deem, and again, it is frowned upon, very important, end quote. Now, I think he's hoping that if he acknowledges that this is frowned upon, that that's going to disarm the people from criticizing him, which I hope it ends up doing. It's nice when people are just very, you know, straightforward about they embrace and what their values are, even if it's going to make them unpopular. I think that that's wonderfully admirable. I like this. Um and he goes on. This is wonderful. Listen to what he says. Quote, you've got to enjoy life. I mean, you've got to, he exclaimed. He says, when I'm making money, I'm spending it on nice stuff, whether that be lavish holidays for me and my friends or just seeing something and going in a shop and saying, yeah, I want that for the house. I'm buying it. Spending money on my friends, buying dinner for everyone, drinks for everyone. It's a nice place to be. And I like people to feel cared for, end quote. So he's not talking about, you know, getting a pot of gold and sitting on it somewhere. He's talking about spending money on people that he values, making the people he values feel cared for, uh, which, of course, is completely consistent with rational self-interest, as we would talk about it here on the show. He continues, again, quoting from Cavill. He says, people will be calling me a cock as they're reading this, but travel's great as long as you're going first class. I can't believe he's doing this. is awesome. He says, I mean, traveling to New Zealand in economy, it sucks. He says, especially if you're over six feet. But first class, he says, I'm not going to ever pretend to be coy about that. I love it, end quote. And then he's got a 19-year-old girlfriend, I guess. And he says he's making up for a lost time after foregoing college as a teen. Quote from Cavill, I didn't get to mess about and be a university kid, but I get to mess about now, he said. And he said, and I've actually got money to spend on nice places rather than having to go to grotty pubs that stink of piss, end quote. He says, I don't like to focus on the things that I missed out on. I also got huge benefits, and that's really good, end quote. So do you love this guy? Um, Rob in the chat room says, I think the Man of Steel shows that he can moderate himself. I think this is truly, truly awesome and excellent. It's it's wonderful that somebody can be unapologetic about liking to earn money. And as I understand it, if you read the article about Snyder and they talk about the producers of Batman versus Superman, that they have also talked about money being an important factor to them and they talk about that in an unapologetic way as well. And um, I've heard uh, Bosch Boston make the observation that the fact that these people are involved in superhero movies, good versus evil, that they have a strong sense of justice, that these naturally would be the people who would be more open to Rand's ideas as expressed in the Fountainhead in terms of individualism versus collectivism, and also being unapologetic about wanting to enjoy your life and enjoy money. Yeah, just Jean in the chat room says it's very refreshing to hear Cavill's perspective, and I agree. So that's actually about all that I've got for you guys today. So what I was thinking I would do is I would maybe leave you with a little bit of a music selection. And I think the fastest way for me to do that, I don't know why I didn't think about it before, is to plug it into my phone and play you guys a selection from my phone. So I told you that 
earlier in the week when I was upset about the election results, what I did is I posted a series of three YouTube videos that had music from different stages, I guess, of grieving (laughs) that you would have after bad election results. And the first one was the Pity Party edition, and I played um, Matchbox 20's How Far We Come, you know, where we talk about the end of the world and all that stuff. And that's pretty depressing, obviously. Is it the end of the world? Probably not. But sometimes at the very beginning, after an election like that, it can feel like that. Then, after that, there was the Catharsis Edition, and I I had a very, very loud piece from Muse called Assassin. But there's an interesting set of lyric in there. It says, oppose and disagree, destroy demonocracy. And demonocracy is indeed what we would have if we had Trump as our president. Um, so then the final one is the, you know, go ahead and, and uh, accept the things you cannot change and change the subject edition. So in changing the subject, I am going to play Angels of Fire, um, uh, you know, by the Jezebels. And again, the Jezebels is what I play at the intro of this show as well. So I hope you enjoy this one. You guys have a great weekend. Go to don'tletitgo.com, support the show, etc. And I'll talk to you next week. Thank mm-hmm. you.